You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I just want to say that support for today's show comes from Google Play, where you can now download and listen to audiobooks. That's right. Thousands of titles a la carte. You don't need a subscription. They uh, integrate across the whole Google ecosystem, so you can uh, listen hands-free with Google Assistant or Chromecast. And the best part is, as a listener to this show, you'll get $10 off your first book over $10, first audiobook over $10, I should say, by visiting g.co slash play slash longform. Again, g.co slash play slash longform. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hello, Aaron. Hey. Who's hey. on the show this week? Uh, we have John Caramonica, uh, New York Times music critic. Long uh, time coming, man. Long time coming. Well, ever since he uh, ever since he gave Francis and the Lights my band a bad review in 2010, I've been waiting for my revenge. I got it here in the studio this week. <laughs> so happy for you, man. Um, I actually uh, really like his writing. Um, he's probably the music critic that I've been reading consistently the longest. Um, and he has an interesting job in an interesting time for music writing. Um, I think I was, uh, remembered to ask him to come on cause he had a big interview with Kanye West around the release of his record. And I was thinking back about interviews he had done with Kanye West, uh, before the release of previous Kanye West records. And I realized uh, that I'm fairly old and also that I wanted to talk to him. Yeah, I feel like you you and Kara Monica have aged together. We, we uh, were both, uh, our facial hair is a similar uh, silvery tint. <laughs> uh, we are brought to you, as usual, by MailChimp, who also are bringing you Read This Summer. Readthissummer.com. Shea Serrano has curated a group of authors with all kinds of fantastic books. So if you're looking for something to read, go to readthissummer.com. And if you happen to be in the uh, Atlanta metro area around Labor Day, go to the Decatur Book Festival. Every time you bring up the Decatur Book Festival, it makes me sad that we don't get to go this year. I tried, man. I really, I really, I really tried to get MailChimp to bring us back, and they were like, "You're not allowed." There's nothing stopping you guys from going as civilians <laughs> to this book festival. It's a free country. Uh, thank you to MailChimp. Uh, they make things like this show, like that book festival possible, and we appreciate it. And now here's Aaron with John Caramonica.
Welcome, uh, John Caramonica. Arrived at the studio with definitely the best snack selection that anyone has ever brought. First of all, you know we came through dripping. Yes. With the Fiji, the Dr. Pepper, and the Haichu. Yeah. Eschete. Yeah, yeah. So, um... I think very few people have like such a neat framing device for this their career, so I'm just gonna do it. You tweeted uh, that you had recently that you had done four Kanye interviews <laughs> over ten years, and that's all I've ever done. And I've so just, I've never done anything else. If I was doing like your story as a writer in like the style of a cable movie, mm-hmm. I think we would like start at the first one and, right. and then go from there. So where was your life at when you wrote a story about Kanye <laughs> in an interview in 2007? I guess the the news peg was the European Music Awards. I no, think. that was I think that wasn't the news peg. I think that was um what was the album that year? I think graduation was about yeah, to come I think out. It was graduation. Okay. Um, so okay, so in 07, for people who haven't listened to any Kanye West albums, you can Kanye, go back and listen to yes, them. It might Kanye be West, good Kanye grounding a, for this a, interview. A rapper and producer and fashion designer. And John is the um, uh, music critic at the New York Times. Yes, I'm a pop music critic in the New York Times. I write the Men Shopping column. Host of the podcast. I host the podcast. Like and subscribe. Okay, so 07. So I did have a career before Kanye West. It's yep. true. So I've been at the Times a little more than 10 years. Just before that, I was at Vibe. I was the music editor of Vibe. Shouts to Danielle Smith. Um, so while I was at Vibe, I was writing other stories. I wrote this piece about Ye, and I wrote it as a freelancer for the Times. This was yep. before I was on staff or on contract. And for me, at that moment, it was clear that Kanye was going to become the thing. Yep. I, I don't. It's tough to say the exact thing he became because yep. it's morphed so many times over the years. But it was obvious that he was an incredible force, and I was really struck. I spent some time in the studio with him, and I was really struck by um, something that I don't think a lot of people talk about, which is how open he is, or certainly not then in talking about, how open he is to other people's ideas and influence and kind of opinion. And he was recording, I think it was flashing lights, and so he has uh, some female vocalist in the booth, and she is doing different versions of the chorus vocal and he's like you know sexy astronaut sexier astronaut you know he's coming up with all these sort of like strange things and then asking kind of whoever comes in the room like what do you think of that like does that good that good i I think like 90 percent sure someone delivered food and like that person also got asked and i've been in a lot of studios over the years and that's just not really how people operate people who are working in the studio tend to assume that they are the most knowledgeable person, that they're beyond reproach. And Kanye, I think it was very clear even at that moment that, not that he doesn't have that streak in him, but that his willingness to absorb was very high. And certainly over the years, that's been made manifest in a lot of other ways, some less appealing than others. So I want to pause you there. Okay, so you said this is how generally, like how a person delivering food gets treated in a studio. <laughs> They're not usually asked about also it. Also how journalists get treated in the Jur- studio. Well, that's what I want to yeah. ask you. So like you're sitting in the studio, and I assume you still do this. Um, oh, God, yes. This is like uh, you've like logged your 10,000 hours in the studio without a single to your name. That's true. Um, I should get some credit. What, though. like... It's actually, I think, unusual for uh, reporters to be given access to that directly to the creative process. Mm-hmm. Like, film critics don't go to film sets 
generally. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a fair comparison. I think, but finish your question. Before so, I... what is your role when you're there? What's your what is your vibe when you are hanging out with someone while they are making their music? You definitely want them to forget you're there. I think this is true across disciplines, yeah. across journalistic practice. You want to observe people in their truest environment. A thing that I have noted as a journalist in various studios over the years is um, the rhythm of a studio is kind of on its own. It's happening. Yeah. Oftentimes, like I was in a studio, this couldn't have been three weeks ago with Juice World. I showed up. There's already eight to ten other people there. Yep. And then by the time I left, 30? So at a certain point, I'm not a problem. And that's good. I don't want to be a problem. Oh, I hadn't thought about it. There's a lot of smokescreen in a studio, both 100%. literal and metaphorically. Oh, 200%. <laughs> but I've also been in studios where I'm only one of two or three people. Yeah. I think in those cases, the artist has an instinct to play towards you. Mm. I will try to do what I can to not be played towards. Mm. Sit on a couch on the far corner, uh, you know, just put your recorder somewhere out of the way. Like, don't, if I want to observe something, you know, you don't want to be the person that changes the thing that gets observed. In a way, the chaotic studio is the optimal environment. It may not be the cleanest environment in the sense of I can get every single detail, but it is optimal because most people aren't thinking about me. Does this inform you? So when you're, when you go into a studio with someone and you're watching them make art and then later they release the art that you saw them making and then perhaps five or ten years down the line they're making another record and you're like i remember in 2009 when i saw this person in the studio and they're behaving in this kind of a way like does all of this stuff sort of build your knowledge of who they are are you not just writing a single profile but sort of building up like a like almost obituaries style database of things that are interesting to you about this person yeah i don't know that i've I don't know if I thought about it in exactly that literal of a term, but I think especially for artists who have some kind of signature sonic innovation, aesthetic approach, whatever. Young Thug is a great example of this. You listen to Young Thug's tapes, and it's clear that he's playing with melody, he's elastic with words, he sort of completely deconstructed the idea of what rapping is, like as sort of a technical thing. Yeah. But it really helps that I spent one night in the studio with Young Thug watching him make a song. Yep. Not a famous song. I don't even know if the song ever came out, to be totally honest. But that was an example where there were maybe four or five people in the room. And I saw him basically talk about gambling for two hours and then disappear. And I was like, oh, man, like, I'm just never, this is just <laughs> not going anywhere. You know, yeah. like, I have some good quotes about gambling, but I guess, I, you know, it's not yeah. happening. And then all of a sudden I see the engineer starting to work and I'm trying to figure out what's happening. And I look in the booth and it's just totally dark. And I was like, man, this is fucking weird. Like what's going on here? And I see the engineer kind of like mumbling conversation, like, and he's having a back and forth and thug is in the booth with, I guess, a bottle of alcohol and some weed or whatever. And he's fumbling his way to a melody one line at a time. He's hearing the beat over and over again, and the engineer's capturing one snippet at a time, and Thug is building the melody of the song. And if I had never seen that, I maybe could have had some abstract appreciation for what Thug does, 
but especially as a guy that grew up in Brooklyn, grew up on New York rap, like I'm used to like written bars. Like mm. that to me was the gold standard from when I was a child. To see that and to understand and appreciate that as its own kind of like aesthetic gift was really valuable. And it made me not think, I don't want to say it made me think differently about the quality of his music because I've always been really enamored of it, but I understood it much more as craft as opposed to just sort of like happenstance. Like, oh, he just like showed up and it just happened. It seems like um, some of the elements of modern music, like the one you just described. I apologize to p- if, if you're listening to the show and you've never heard any rap music. Oh my god! I don't Wait, know. Do y'all uh, have listeners that haven't heard rap uh, music? Come on! If man. you don't recognize a term, it's probably a rapper. Young oh, Thug, Young oh Thug raps. God. So don't at me. Don't do not at, don't at, at me. Mr. Caramonica. But I. It seems like when I think about music uh, from the 60s, 70s, 80s. I've never up, heard any of that music. Up until even the golden era uh, hip hop that you're describing. Yep. A lot of these things are like things that you more more or less can understand as a performance. And you're like, how did they make them? It's like, well, they went into a studio and performed the that. They right. He wrapped his bars into yep. a microphone. And then you have modern forms. And I think this... Uh, Kanye West is an example of this in terms of the collaboration team, people going to Hawaii idea, Uh or even a young thug is an example of music. That's basically being written in real time in a computer Mm -hmm. and pieced together like a collage. It seems like music is getting harder for people to understand like what it exactly is they're hearing and how it's been made. Well, I mean, I guess if you are from the data generation, yes, it maybe is not as difficult to comprehend. Although I will say, as someone myself who straddles these generations, yes. sort of like raised in a maybe more classical mindset, but kind of still like comfortable. You had to email in college, but not high school. Exactly. My freshman year of college was the first year that every freshman was assigned an email address. There you go. That had not happened. Maybe. That's the fissure in the world. It really is. So, you know, I balance these two kind of approaches. It probably took me a minute to... Yeah. <laughs> and get comfortable, but now I'm super comfortable. A really good example of this, okay, so, like I said, I've been at the Times a little more than 10 years, and probably in my third or fourth year, I began to realize that there were only so many ways we were writing about music. Like, we were reviewing concerts, we were reviewing albums, we'd, like, do an artist profile, but that there was so much happening outside of that that we should really figure out a way to do more of that. Give me an example, like what you mean outside of that. So I wrote a profile of a guy named Kook Harrell. And Kook was a vocal coach or a vocal producer. And really what he did, and I didn't totally understand. I just knew I saw his name popping up on credits. This is why I miss credits. I miss metadata. I miss all that stuff. I feel I like they're coming stuff. back. Like the, Slowly. Like, the credits drop is now like a it's news own thing. Yeah, It's its own thing. Although often it happens like two weeks after And the often record. it's completely wrong. But other it's than that maddening. at least people are interested. I can't tell you how many times I've emailed a publicist on the day an album is yeah. actually available and been like can I have the credits? And they're like we don't have those. Yeah, They're like oh that's cute. We don't have that. Anyway but I would see Kook's name pop up in all these credits and I was like man what is this guy doing? And I reached out to him and to his representatives, and they were like, well, do you want to come in the studio? And he could show you. I said, great. And I gleaned that he was Justin Bieber's vocal producer. And I was like, oh, well, wouldn't it be nice if we like went in the studio with Ku Carell and Justin Bieber? And we made that happen. And I watched, and what he did is Justin had a demo that 
people had played for him, and he was like, I like that. I want to do that. And he basically went through it syllable by syllable with Kook and sang 10, 20, 30 different versions. And Kook, in the way that Young Thug was kind of like piecing out the melody, when Kook was literally building in real time, you know, take four, take six, take one, take 12, building the vocal in his Pro Tools or whatnot. And that was really instructive. Because as much as I understood that pop music was like piecemeal and like that there were outside handlers doing massaging, there's thinking that and then there's watching someone literally build a Justin Bieber song one syllable at a time with Justin Bieber in the other room trying 20 different versions of the bay, 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 bay. You know, that was really eye-opening. And so... To me, not only does that make for a good profile of someone, that a part of the pop music sphere that nobody knows, but also lets me understand how all the things that we hear on the radio are so kind of like, the the technology is kind of like, um, it's an intermediary between us and the artist. Yeah. It's always there, especially now. And it's the essential palette on which this it art is, is being in made. Tw- in 2018, Pro absolutely. Tools is the uh, the canvas. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I, I, you know, it's an instrument. Yeah. Much like... A guitar, yeah. much like a drum machine. And, you know, I like I used to have occasional quarrels with the copy desk because I would say that someone used like an 808 drum machine and they'd be like, well, what's it? You know, you have to qualify. Like, <laughs> uh, what's that, an 808? Like I would say an 808 and they'd be like, well, what's GR that? GR 808? <laughs> right. But, but, but at the same time, like I'd be like, well, if I said guitar, you wouldn't tell me to qualify what a guitar right. was. Like an 808, it, it, it may not be an instrument that yep. everyone is familiar with, but like it's still an instrument and yep. we're still going to call it what it's called. Okay, I'm I'm gonna rewind even further now. So yeah, you said back. you uh you grew up in Brooklyn. I did. I, I grew up in Sheepshead Bay, which is outer Brooklyn, like yep. the southeast corner, and then in Mill Basin, which is sort of on the far east side, kinda like by the Queens border. Um tell me about growing up in Mill Basin. Um and Sheepshead Bay. Well yeah, Sheepshead Bay so basically my my entire mother's side of the family all lived in the same building in Sheepshead Bay. Uh the bay is an actual bay, runs along Emmons Avenue. And at the end of the bay, there's a, a one-block street called Shore Boulevard with buildings that overlook the end of the bay. And my grandmother and great-grandmother and their whole families lived in that building. So I spent a lot of my time there. Sheepshead Bay, if you haven't been, it's extremely far. It's just far. Yeah. Um, and Especially from Manhattan. Yeah. And, like, I kind of grew up. Manhattan was a real abstraction to me as a kid. As a young kid, my dad fixed cars. He owned a body shop in Manhattan, but that was kind of my only conceptual. It's like my dad goes there for work and he comes back. I didn't understand the city as yep. part of my upbringing. But um, by middle school, I went to middle school in Bay Ridge, and then I went to high school in Manhattan. I went to Stuyvesant, so I became more fluent with the city and all the things that I'd sort of been soaking in kind of in passing which is a, you know, hip-hop, graffiti, like, all these things that were slightly abstracted as a kid. Like, for me, I I grew up hearing all that stuff on the radio, and so to be in Manhattan where I was like, oh, shit, this is, like, where it's all actually happening, like, it's, like, it just felt much more in the air than in Sheepshead Bay. Uh, And Mill Basin, Mill Basin is, like, mafia territory at that time, very heavily Italian, it's right by the water. You know, it's a very isolated part of Brooklyn, there's no train station in Mill Basin. Like, you got to take a bus to get to the train. I grew up driving. Most kids who grew up in New York didn't grow up driving. I grew up driving because everywhere I ever lived 
was far away, and my dad fixed cars, so I always was around cars. I'm also a longtime Brooklyn driver. I I, I don't feel any need to defend it I, either. I appreciate that. It's 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 bizarre to me because I understand there's an energy of the city that you get when you're on mass trans, but like a terrible me, energy. Well, <laughs> <laughs> depends what hour, especially. Yeah, yeah. But for me, like the energy of driving late night, windows open, music yep. blasting, like that is my that's my Brooklyn. That's yep. my New York. Did you have writerly ambitions as a teenager? No, I didn't. I I just sort of assumed. I didn't know anyone who was a writer, you know, like I didn't, I think what I assumed at that time was I'd have a, basically a square job, you know, like a teacher or a lawyer or whatever. I'd, I'd get a square job. I'd just be like a lawyer who really cared about hip hop. Yeah. You know, like a teacher who was really in hip hop, an economist who really cared about hip You know, there was no framework for me of like, oh, I can be passionate about this thing find a way to be creative about it, become part of it in some way, and then actually, like, live. That was not a thing. Even when I would read, like, the earliest issues of The Source that I found, like, I would read those things, and I was like, oh, so nice. They just all, like, get together and make a match. Like, it never occurred to me there were jobs. Like, it never occurred to me anybody had, like, a 401k or anything. Yeah. Like, I just was like, oh, it's just, like, a bunch of friends. They're just, like, making a magazine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that wasn't even, that was nowhere near the front or even the back of my mind. Yeah. I didn't know. What what when did I'm trying to like locate in time what era did the explosion of hip hop magazines occur? There was there was the source and then double XL. all of a sudden double XL, and then all of a sudden you what? go to like a, a train station newsstand mm-hmm. and there would be like really like knockoffy th- th- oh, there was sure. an explosion. You're of probably them. thinking of the late nineties. Late nineties. So basically yeah. the source starts in the I don't know if it's technically 89 or 90, but certainly by like 91, it's up and running for real. Uh, By the early to mid 90s, you had rap pages, rap sheet, 4080, places like that. But a lot of those were slightly regional. Like Mm. you you were getting them more on the West Coast than you would get here. Vibe, obviously, from 92 or early 93 onwards exists as like the slightly more cosmopolitan alternative. Double XL launches in 97. My first, like, genuine, like, rap magazine piece was in the second issue of Double XL. So this is, like, late 1997. And then the thing that you're talking about where you go to the newsstands and it's, like, 100 magazines, I think that all kind of comes in its wake. Because yep. it's, number one, hip-hop is fully pop music at that point. It's, like, on the charts. And there's demonstrated ad bu- The people are out there buying ads. And as you know, magazines only exist because people buy ads in them. Or don't exist because people don't buy ads. <laughs> R.I.P. Pour out a little Fiji <laughs> for all the all the R.I.P. Dead magazines. So, how do you go from being a uh, Brooklyn teen to um, getting a story in the second XXL? Oh man! So, two steps. One, I met in the mid '90s uh, a friend of mine named Oliver Oliver Wang, who was running at that time the 12 inch singles review column page in herb magazine herb was a los angeles based magazine that covered hip-hop and sort of like associated dance music genres yeah uh so shouts to oliver oliver i met oliver through this kid ed ed who ran a website that still exists called sandbox automatic which was like an indie rap retail website who i went to summer nerd camp with like in eighth grade or ninth grade and just randomly like kept in touch with so I wrote some single reviews for Oliver, and at school, at college, so I went to Harvard, uh, 
I wrote a rap singles review column for the school paper. It was called Twelve Inches. And was it Jonathan Sheck who started the Source also? Sheck, yeah. So, so there Shek, was there was a there was there a was. rap journalism tradition coming out it's, of Harvard. It's, so at college, I I wrote the Twelve Inch Singles review column. I DJed on the radio station. I had I had like a two hour radio show every Saturday night for most of my time at college, and. Um, during senior year, myself and a few friends uh, threw a conference, uh, like a hip-hop conference. It was like a thing you could do at a college in the mid-90s and get, like, sort of notable people. Yeah. Like, reasonably notable. But one of the people that I was in charge of getting was this guy, Reggie Dennis. Uh, uh, Reggie was had been the first, like, notable music editor of The Source in the mid-90s and had just left to found XXL. And so he and I got to talking, and... After I graduated, I stayed in touch with him. I sent him some of my writing. And at that time, I was like, I want to write about backpack rap. Like, I want to write about indie rap. And he was like, yeah, you'll get over that, but whatever. (laughs) And so for issue two, he was like, okay, Stretch Armstrong put out this record. Like, you can write about that. And I was like, what? (laughs) A dollar a word? Are you kidding me? I thought it was just like going to be like honey and roses from that point forward. What, What was it like covering rap during that period? It was a lot different than now. Yeah. There's a lot different than now. Um, what's happening now is there's a presumption that everything should be covered. You know, everything is always documented, whether it's individual social media or certain kind of uh, websites or that are dedicated to like underground music or whatever. Like everything is constantly covered. Back then, you had to fight to cover stuff. You had to fight to convince people that they should be covered. Yeah. It was strange. Like, you'd be like, I want to put you in double XL. And they'd be like, ah, okay. You know, like, it, yeah. it didn't, it wasn't always, like, I remember I tried to chase, when Gucci Mane put out Icy, I literally spent a week working the phones trying to get a number for him. I mean, this is not that long. This is 15 years ago, 16 years ago. I just couldn't find him. And at a certain point, I just gave up, and then eventually someone else did find him. But it just wasn't as seamless as it is today. You know, everything was a lot looser. The rules were a lot... It was just wilder shit happening. You were allowed to hit the blunt in the studio then? I don't, your you know, we don't, you know, no blunt, just high chews and Dr. Pepper, man. So, okay, <laughs> I want I want to talk about what the difference is when you are going to them or they're coming to you. Because it seems like there's a real difference in the push-pull there. If you are seeking people out and saying, hey, I want to cover you, I want to do this stuff... That seems like a different equation than it's a little more set out now, or the yeah, expectations it's are a little systematized. clearer. Systematized, yeah, yes. and that's I miss when it wasn't yeah systematized. Although I do think, in a perverse way, the kind of free for all that's happening on the internet right now, it actually creates an opportunity to desystematize things. Now, people get absorbed into the system pretty quickly, like people who are hitting on SoundCloud, like all of a sudden yeah. are on Interscope or Atlantic yeah. or Def Jam, like that happens pretty fast. But, like, when I did, so, like, I did one of the first really big SoundCloud rap features. We're talking, like, this last April, last March. Yeah. None of those people had publicists. Like, that was all just me kind of like, well, I guess Lil Peep at the time had a manager, maybe. But, like, for the most part, that was just, like, a rogue, renegade thing that was happening. And I just went out and kind of, like, put hooks in wherever I could put hooks in. So the internet kind of creates opportunities for that. But it also means that if you're doing well, you probably already have a booking agent. You probably already have a publicist. You probably low-key have a label, even if people don't know you have a label. That's frustrating to me. 
because I like working in a less regulated environment. So there are parts of working today that remind me of the 90s, but I do think that it's people move from the kind of unregulated space to the regulated spaces far more quickly than they ever did back then. What can you do with a artist who's in an unregulated space and does not have a publicist that makes it superior? You don't want to say superior because I, I do think they're different. Yeah. What I do think is I like to interview people personally very early in their careers or very late in their careers. I think vulnerability and willingness to be vulnerable is at a peak in those two parts. Yep. You know, young enough not to know better, old enough not to give a damn. Um, you know, I love Drake. Yeah. Like interviewing Drake on like his fourth album. He's not, not going to say some crazy shit. It's not. I mean, he may, but it's not as interesting to me because to me, the story that I want to tell is sort of like what you were asking in the beginning. Yeah. Like, how are you this person? Yeah. And then you became, became this. this. Yeah. And then at the end, let's look back on all these things and like, let's paint the arc together. But in the middle, when your primary obsession is how do I protect my role? How do I keep my role safe? How do I keep my spot? How do I keep the throne? I'm not as interested in that personally as a journalist or as a critic. So when you're interviewing someone who is basically pre-publicist, like sort of in the earliest phases, I like to think you're getting a pretty unregulated look into their lives. But also the downside of that is they maybe don't know what the best interview approach is. Like they may not know that me asking, oh, let me ask you about your hometown, your child, like they may see that as invasion yeah. rather than sort of normal journalistic practice. So like I've had issues where you interview someone and it can get a little bit testy because they're not necessarily used to being asked questions because they're that early in their career. And so you end up navigating a lot of different things than you would with someone who's like signed to Def Jam and like just has been media trained. This is something I've noticed in long form also is that um, the profiles of people that endure are the profile the person when they're really young on the cusp of fame and the person when they're really old yeah. and you're like so the times had a great profile of dick cavett I, yeah, yeah yeah recently very much along those lines along the like wow dick cavett i you hope know? to be around long enough to do like late life profiles with the people who i also did early life profiles well, you, with you did a thing about the sort of generation gap with rappers yeah. recently right mm -hmm. and, and we all know where that story is going it's going straight to the retirement i mean eventually i can't there wait. will be enough generations that you will be writing the dick cavett piece about jay-z i can't wait um and you're planning to hang around long enough for I, this. I mean i battle <laughs> until they kick me out yeah Let's talk about the the young one because uh, rap has not been around long enough for you to write the Dick Cavett style yeah. pieces. Yeah. So the uh, I'll take Juice World as an example just because sure. I think it's like the last, yeah. uh, the most recent piece you've written about a new artist, mm -hmm. someone who's got like a surging single, but mm -hmm. whose name I did not know eight weeks ago. Okay. When you're coming in cold like that and you got a new audience, new artist, mm -hmm. like how do you filter all of the noise about them into something that you can fit into a New York Times profile? And are you assuming, like in a New York Times context, are you assuming someone's heard Juice World when you're writing about it? No. Um, it's, okay, so this is something, and I wonder if you've spoken to other people who work at the Times, and I wonder yes. if you've had similar conversations with them. There is, my audience is not a New York Times audience. Yeah. And that's not to say that I don't write for the New York Times and people who read the New York Times don't read me. But I firmly believe that, like, 
people who read me may not be the same people who read Rukmini or who may not be the same people who read like um, Binya Applebaum right. or whatever. Right. Like, and Leslie it, Morris said a similar thing, which is like, I write for the Wesley Morris audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and that's how I feel. Like, I, I think there are people who come to me because they trust my aesthetic judgment and because they know that I'm delivering sort of a consistent, yeah. like if you look back over the last 10 years, like hopefully the story of pop music can be told through the stories that I wrote over yep. those 10 years. That's how I would like it to be. I think writing in that kind of like very insidery way, like if you go back and read some of my like village voice reviews from like the mid 2000s or the early 2000s, like it's super interwoven, hyper referential. Like, like it's just, I can't even read them anymore. Like I don't even know what the fuck I was talking about. But I think that's something that when I was writing for The Voice in its own way or writing for Double XL in that way or The Source back in the day in those ways, you can make presumptions of your audience and say, oh, well, they're they're already this far along. Yeah. I don't think I do that anymore. And I think some of that is a conscious process and some of that is I've just been writing for The Times for 10 years. So certain things become normalized. Yeah. Um, but I like to think that I'm writing in a way that if you've never heard the person, you're not going to feel left out. You're yeah. not going to read the first three paragraphs and be like, I have no idea what's going on here. Also, these people to me, especially when I'm profiling them, like criticism and profile are different. Like my job is I'm a critic, but I do a fair amount of profiles. Yeah. Profiling is its own art. Like a great opening scene to a profile or a great opening set to a profile. Like that should draw you in. That should draw you in if you have no idea. If it's about an actor, if it's about a theater director, if it's about a politician, like it should draw you in. And hopefully that skill gets brought to bear and people stick around and learn something about the music. But I don't ever want to be, I don't ever want a reader to be like, well, that's, that's, I just couldn't possibly understand. <laughs> and, you know, like I've been out and like I'll meet people and they'll say, oh, you totally put me on to such and such. And they're in their 50s or their 60s or yep. their 70s. I mean, that's all happened. That's because I write for the Times. If I was writing the same exact pieces for Complex or XXL or whatever, I don't think those people would find me. But I think it's great that they're able to find me because of where I write and don't feel alienated because of how I'm presenting. And it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's an excitement there for the artists themselves as well. Like, that we're living in a pretty anti-media mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. and I've certainly heard, you know, musicians, artists of all stripes say, it's not worth it for me to do media anymore. I only want to be able to do things where I can control my own messaging. I don't need them, blah, blah, blah. And it seems like- I only want to choose my own photographer. And it's Am seems, I choosing my photographer for this? <laughs> it seems like the Times is a big enough platform that yeah. it's exciting even to the cynical. And, you know, in the case of, let's say, uh, the most recent Kanye West yeah. album, it seems like you got the most time with him. I mean, I got the only time. You really. got the only the time. Only, yeah. Yeah. And that's partially because of the Times and partially because of previous relationships. I mean, with that story in particular, like, I got like these weird emails where yeah. people will be like, Oh, was that pitched to you? Like, you know, like did did like Oh yeah, you got played. <laughs> no, or just like, you know, was that who set that up? And it's so funny cuz people genuinely have no idea how anything happens. Yeah. And to be fair, I like to keep some of the mystery cuz I'm not out here to like it's I'm not trying to show like a play-by-play -play of like yeah. how I, my career happens, but the Kanye is a good example of you know, that Wyoming event everybody flew out for. And in my mind I was like, "Oh, I don't think he's going to talk to anybody, but like I should, I should try. Yeah. And 
without putting too fine a point on it, I shot my shot. Tell me what it means that you should try. Like, what, how do you try in a situation? Well, like I think, and part of the reason I'm able to try is because I have pre-existing relationships and I can probably get closer to where right. you can shoot the shot from yeah. than just someone who randomly flew out there. Yeah. But what that means for me is, like, making it clear that while I am here, a thing that I would like to achieve is not the thing that everybody else is here to achieve. Right. And I understand that everybody is here under those pretenses, and ostensibly, I'm here under those pretenses. Right. But everyone who I know should know that I have different intentions. And so I made that plane. Like, once I arrived in Wyoming, I made that plane. I made that plane to representatives. I'm, and I talked to Ye, and I said, hey, I'm here. Let me know. Yeah. And we pieced it together. And there was probably six other people there from different publications who also were trying to shoot their shot, Maybe. I would think. As Mariah said, I don't know them. So when you get the nod in a situation like that, like what is the nod and what are what are the terms of the nod? Like for that There were piece, no terms. No terms. No terms. No terms at all. You know, I as, as in any situation, if the artist says, hey, I want to tell you something off the record. Right. I respect the off the record. Yeah. But no terms. Yeah, I mean, but like, could you get like how many hours oh i was i spent um i mean the event was on a thursday night because that was the album release night i spent probably eight to ten hours with him on friday and probably six to seven hours with him on saturday and again no in my mind i could get kicked out at any time yeah there was no pre-arrangement there was no like you have exactly 90 minutes like it was nothing like that it was just like come hang out see what happens And I just did that, and I basically waited to get kicked out, which is, like, I think not how Hollywood stuff happens. And I think it happened because it was Wyoming, and it's, like, wide open spaces, and, like, everybody's kind of feeling good, and Kanye wants to go see Yellowstone, so, like, we're just going to go see Yellowstone. But basically, I knew that at any moment I could just get kicked out. And you could have gone to Wyoming and not gotten and gotten zero minutes, and then that I, would have just I been a different totally piece. I was totally prepared. And did you have, like... I actually, you... well, I, I had already written that piece, because oh, I yeah. wrote the piece immediately... Thursday night like went about the bound about fire. the event yeah. I wrote I came home I stayed up till five six in the morning I wrote the kind of like scene piece yeah no quotes just like here's what happened here's what the record kind of sounds like here's this weird thing that happened we had a photographer there here's some cool pictures in my mind if I had not written another word from that trip it would have still been a fine trip like yep. it would have been good but I had a vision and so I just tried to manifest that motherfucker and it worked so for um Aspiring journalists yeah, listening, manifest, what what does manifesting look like? What like what do you think has allowed you to get in rooms that maybe other people didn't yeah. get into, mm-hmm. or you weren't even sure that you were going to get into? Yeah, that's. I mean, I, I think about this a lot. I think it's a couple things in my career, not just at the times, but also prior to the times. Like I said, I really like to capture people early in their career, and I think when you capture someone early in their career in a way that they relate to. And you look them in the eye and you make it clear that you understand the art that they're making, that you appreciate it, that you understand where it comes from, that you understand the big picture of it. That sticks with people so that the next time they see you or think about you, they're like, oh, yeah, that guy gets it. That guy's okay. I'm okay with that guy. And I think I've done a lot of that in various outlets over the years. I find especially younger artists who really want to be understood. I think more famous people they want to control the narrative a little bit more. Like they're not as interested in kind of a back and forth, but I feel like I can identify moments in early interviews with people who are now extremely famous, you know, like a Drake or a Taylor or whatever, 
where you can kind of see like, oh, we're having a real conversation about what they do. And maybe the 10 other interviews they did on that press cycle, maybe they didn't have a real conversation. I think that's helped a lot. And when it comes to later in career, if they want to open up or they feel like they want to share, that maybe puts me one step ahead of the next person. But to be honest, like, I haven't had a Drake interview in a while. I mean, that may change, but like, for whatever reason, he's, you know, I, I don't actually know if I even asked on the most recent. No, I don't, I didn't ask on the most recent. Yeah, so like, do you like ask for no, everything or certain things just no, like, oh, fuck it, I'm not going to No, ask. I didn't, like with Drake, I didn't, because I just felt like, again, partially where he is in his career. Yeah. And also like, I, I don't know, it just didn't, sometimes you can smell from a distance what the kind of like, how the relationship with press is at the moment. And I just sort of could smell that it wasn't there. Maybe next time. But there's no guarantee. This is the thing is that there's no guarantees. But I, I think if I've been able to have longevity, it's because I haven't hitched myself or stuck myself to like one generation of artists where it's, yep. like it's either this generation or nothing. Like, you know, I can write about Juice World and also write about Kanye and also like write about the Ram LZ art show. It's all of those things. So if for whatever reason, one thing is not happening there's a hundred other things going on. Like anyone who tells me they can't find good stories is not looking hard enough. Do you find like any sense of creeping grumpy old man in yourself as a listener or anything like that? Like how have you, how has your relationship with music changed in the last 10 years since you've been at the times? Yeah. There's two parts to that answer. One is the thing that makes me really grumpy are actual grumps. <laughs> like way more than the music changing. Yeah. Like, people who are grumpy about it piss me off. Because it just... I know what it was like to be 14, 18, 20, and have old people tell me the music that I liked wasn't shit. How would I ever think that growing into an old man who then tells the me of 20 years later the music you like isn't shit? What the fuck, man? Yep. What a horrifying idea. To me, I, one of the reasons I like being where I'm at in the place where I write and also the music that I cover is it's constantly changing. It keeps me on my toes. Like it forces me to pay attention and maybe, I mean, you know, I'm not married. I don't have kids. Like maybe I see you in here with a baby today. Oh, yeah. Maybe if I'm running around with a baby someday, I won't be on the SoundCloud top 50, you know, like that might happen. Do I move maybe like five to 10% slower than I did five to 10 years ago? Yeah, maybe, yep. but I've also got other things to do. I write about shopping. I'm, you know, there's outside projects. I'm Podcasting. Take on. I, oh my God. Podcast, like, and motherfucking subscribe. Okay. So not a grump. I'm also, I think I've like alluded being a grump. And part of the reason that I th think it's easier to not be a grump now is that I feel increasingly capable of finding music interesting that it exists without like totally liking it. Like mm. for instance, like the emo rap uh, like I didn't like emo the first time around. <laughs> so unlikely I'm going to like love some of the emo sad strains white, and raps. Sad white 30 year olds around the country are turning their pressing paws. They're turning this podcast <laughs> off. But right the now. interesting thing is, is it's still fascinating to me. It's mm -hmm. still fascinating to me that kids who were super into Marilyn Manson mm -hmm. are making rap music yeah. now. And, totally or agree. that people who like, Panic at the Disco and Blink-182 are major cultural touchstones for. So it, it still holds my interest mm -hmm. without me, like, repping it, per se. Yeah, but what's interesting for me is I... Look, I'd be lying if I said I had no comfort music. 
you know, like, do I listen to Cameron Purple Haze, like, for comfort? Yeah, of course. Like, but like, you know, there the music that was formative or, or germinal for me, like, obviously it accesses a pleasure center that yep. maybe something I just heard yesterday for the first time can't access because your pleasure centers kind of get fixed at a certain yep. point in your life. But just by pure percentage of all the music I listen to, 95% of it is new. Like, I'm not one of these people that's like, I listen to new music from my job, but when I get home, you know, yep. I listen to Waylon Jennings. Like, it's not like that. Yep. Like, I genuinely am curious and interested in what's happening right this second. I want to know the narrative of pop music that's happening right now. And to be honest, I was like this before I had this job. Yeah. It just so happens I lucked into getting a job that requires this of me. But... It's how I've always been. I've asked this of uh, TV critics. I don't think I've asked a music critic mm. yet. Do you have like a regimen? Are you like oh, two God. hours in the morning, no, like hit I the wish. SoundCloud top 50? Oh, God, I wish. Like, I, I, is I it, wish. Is I, it organized at no, all? No, no. I'm an extremely disorganized person. It's oh, yeah. very catch as catch can. We do a thing. We do like a Friday playlist at the paper. So like once a week, I'm kind of forced to SoundCloud top 50, yep. YouTube new music, Spotify new music. Like I, I try to engage with those things. But it's very haphazard because for me, no, no, no two weeks are alike. Like the only steady things in my week are I record a podcast and I write this playlist. But everything else, like I could be traveling, I could be writing a profile. When I did the Kanye thing, like I was basically off grid for three weeks. Yep. Like, if you look at my social media or you look at my byline page at the Times, there was just three weeks where I didn't write anything. And like the reason I didn't write anything because I was like transcri I transcribed myself, but I was transcribing like ten or twelve hours of audio. Is that because you didn't want to like send the off to the transcription? First of all, I would never send an important tape out to be transcribed. Second of all, you know, you go on and off record with people. I don't trust other people with that. And third when you transcribe your own tape, you remember the nuances. You remember the context. You remember when the bag crunch happens, that's the Doritos. Like, you remember that. Yeah. And so I want to trigger all that for myself. So between transcribing, first draft, second draft, like, I just yep. was off grid. So no regimen. I wish. Someday with the regimen. If someone has a good regimen, I would love to know what it would be. But, like, I just I can't imagine it would work. So... I think we've been talking more about the profile side than the criticism side. Yeah. And I'm a crit which is, you know, yeah. I'm a critic. So thinking about the critic side, and this also applies to the profile yeah. side, because I think that the line is blurring a little bit when we, it's yeah, like, and, it's, and a, I, it's hard to not like bring biographical information into a critical review. Like yeah. if you're reviewing Drake, you can't be like, Drake, the music, not right. the person. Like, no, and, and also like, I choose to do the profiles I choose to do because of a critical impulse. Right. Like, it's not like we're like, well, someone's got to profile Chris Carabo. Yeah. Like, I guess I'll just do it. Like, it's more like, I think this might be an interesting thing in the larger critical narrative I'm trying to tell. But maybe I can tell this story a little bit more effectively through an interview as opposed to through right. an essay. So in the critical realm, like taking, I don't know, I'm sorry that this interview has had the word Drake in it like 900 it's, times. It's, I don't know why I keep using it. not enough. Yeah. More so, Drake. okay. So you talked about people who are in between the like obituary story and yeah. the first story. And yeah. Drake fits Perfect squarely example. in that camp. Yeah. Still number one streaming artist in the world. Mm. Still really on the throne on some level. Very much so. But also you didn't interview him for his yeah. last album. Didn't necessarily feel like you had to. Mm -hmm. When someone like Drake, there is so much noise coming out of the internet. There oh, yeah. are so many takes. There's so many Instagram posts. Oh, I'm so glad we're talking about this. That I wonder, I, I listened to your podcast about uh, the new Drake album, Scorpion, just because 
there's a million narratives converging on oh, the yeah. Drake album, uh, Scorpion. And not only can you not expect that your audience is aware of all of those narratives, mm-hmm. lots of those narratives are kind of bullshit, yeah, yeah. but they're still kind of fun to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Is the podcast like a vessel for mm-hmm. you to be able to bring all of that stuff in? Like, I guess I think that when I imagine what the funnest conversation about music that's happening right now, it's probably like a bunch of music writers just talking shit and kind yeah. of having fun yeah. with it more than like a... It's not like a Lester Bangs like seminal essay. Mm-hmm. We're not like really living in that time I, as much. Although I think pro- as recently as like five years ago, maybe we were, but I yeah. don't think we are anymore. And that's, you know, if I'm having like any like crisis of career, yeah, it's trying to identify what the role of the critic is. Yes. in like a very crowded internet. So like to your point, I'll answer the yeah. podcast thing first, and yeah. then I'll go on this. Popcast is like an accident for me. Like Popcast used to be Ben Ratliff's baby. Hi Ben, I love you, I miss you. And I was sort of like co-host slash like play-by-play color commentary. You know, You're the like DJ academics to his Joe Budden. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, and I liked it because Ben was pre-beef, like, pre-beef, yeah, pre-beef. Yes. <laughs> ben is a very like uh, serious and sober person. Yeah. And I would just come in and be like. Bah! And like, it just, it seemed funny to me. And I think we played off each other really well. We're good friends. And I think we liked the rhythm. We used to do like a yoga stretch before we would actually record. It was pretty funny. And then Ben left. Ben took the buyout to go write books and to teach. And the podcast was just mine. And I had to kind of figure out what it was. And what I realized I wanted to do was not so much talk about things I couldn't talk about in my reviews. Because I could talk about those things. I, I very rarely feel like... I can't touch on a subject or, yep. a, or a sub-subject in a review. But I was like, I, I want to talk to my friends. Like, I yep. want to talk to the smartest people on a subject. And so sometimes there are people I know. Sometimes there are people I cold call or cold email and say, hey, you don't know me, but I'm an admirer of your writing, and would you like to come on and talk? And that's been a really, like, generative experience for me. Like, I've really enjoyed it, and I feel like rhythmically it doesn't sound like a lot of other podcasts and I, I like the looseness and I think we have incredibly dedicated fans and I'm really grateful for that. So it's like a compliment, but not a replacement for criticism. Yeah. The thing that I worry about, so like Scorpion, let's, let's take the Scorpion example. And this is something I've talked through with a couple people already privately. So if you are one of those people, I apologize. You can skip the next 60 seconds. <laughs> so Scorpion comes out, you know, Thursday midnight into Friday morning. By that point, you already have 100, 200, 300 pieces of Drake content that's like anticipating what might be on Scorpion or who it might be about. Da, da, da. Then Friday comes along, you've got pieces that are like single listener reviews, and then you have track pieces, and you have Drake producer Tay Keith speaks on working. You have all these like micro cutting up of the pie, and that's fine. I'm there for all of it. That said, that's another three, four, five hundred pieces about Scorpion yep. before I've even listened to it four times. Right. And all of those pieces will never receive traffic within two days of right now. Exactly. My goal, obviously, is to write as close to a definitive review as possible, yep. minimum a meaningful review. But there is so much signal chatter yep. by the time my piece drops now, maybe I'm not doing my job well. Like, who knows? Maybe I, a perfect take should be able to, like, cut through all of that. But I think in this internet climate, it's really harder for any individual take 
no matter how good it is, no matter how strong it is, it's hard for any individual piece to stand out and really shape the narrative. Whereas I do think as recently as five years ago, you can write a take and people would be like that. I get that. I'm into it. I'm responding to it. It's like part of the discourse. Yeah. I think that's harder now. This also just, this was like a slightly tougher Drake era. Cause I do think what I'm waiting for with Drake is like the next aesthetic shift. Right. And I think Drake is kind of at the tail end of an aesthetic period. Yeah. So I think part of it is the, that Scorpion didn't naturally lend itself to like the, Oh shit take. Right. Um, but I worry as a critic, and I think other critics I've spoken to are also worried that criticism kind of as a practice is there's a lot of clutter. Yeah. It's harder and harder to distinguish, especially online, between what is criticism and what's a take. Yeah. And what's a take and what's informational. And all those things really are muddied. And so I don't know what the practice of criticism is going to look like five or 10 years from now. And some of those things that you're talking about aren't really takes in the classical sense of the word on the album. We know that they're not because they come out before the album comes out. They're pre-takes. They're pre-narratives, really. They're like saying, Drake is this, this person is this, this is what this project means, these are the clues, these are all these things. So are you in more of a a decoder role also now where you have to? Because I feel like in some of these pieces you're like, this is what people have been saying about Drake on the internet, Mm -hmm. it's important because this album is Drake rapping about what people have said about him on the internet. Like, there's a self-aware meta element. I mean, certainly for an artist like Drake, who kind of makes metacriticism part of his own thing, that you have to do that. Yeah. And especially in a moment like this where he is not in his... Like, you can mark two or three significant aesthetic shifts in Drake's career. We are not necessarily at a fourth point right now. So what you end up writing about are these kind of sub-narratives and kind of interwoven things. But also, all reviews don't serve the same function. A lot of times, if I think someone is doing an interesting thing that many other people are not doing... I will write something that's like incredibly musically driven, like a classic music album review or live concert review or whatever that's like very old school. But a lot of times what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create narratives. So like last week or two weeks ago, the YG album came out and I was like, this is a good album. It's like a slightly weird YG record. We have a pop music page on Thursday. We have to fill that page. I'll review the YG record. But also, like, I don't know if I have a thousand words in me on the YG record necessarily. Oh, but the Buddy record just came out, and Buddy does a different thing. And he's also from Los Angeles. And let's maybe try to tell a slightly more expansive story about this particular moment in hip-hop in Los Angeles. So a lot of what I'm doing right now, especially because there's so much music, like, it's impossible to review every important record or every important song or whatever. So there's so much music that a lot of what I'm trying to do is pluck things and be like, oh, you want a story about what's happening in 2018? It's this and this and this. Tie those things together and try to tell that story. Compared to when you started doing this, when you could say, okay, what's like New York rap? It's like Dipset, it's this and this. It's like, maybe you can't list everyone, but like, yeah it's not it's like it's a smaller world and now when you have like soundcloud you have these different platforms different things it seems like there's like more narratives converging than you possibly can cover all of them Mm -hmm. like when you start sort of summing it all up and painting the picture what kind of larger stories are you trying to tell like if i when you take a year of your columns no not columns uh, profiles Mm -hmm. and criticism pieces all together like 
What is the broader narrative that you're trying to tap into? I think for me, it's innovation. Mm. It's aesthetic change. A joke that I have said, a sort of uncharitable joke that I have made over the years is like, I don't like reviewing like indie rock bands on their fifth album because like it's probably pretty much like the fourth album. It's probably, you know, like no shots to some indie rock bands that I'm sure I like and yep. have innovate. But like, I want to go where the action is. Like, I want to go where people are saying the old way. Nah, fuck that. Yeah. Like, I'm doing some different thing. That to me is where I want to be. And so. I would hope if you take any given year of my criticism, you will see not just a story of pop music in that year, cross genre, but you will also see the story of the people who are disrupting and making changes and causing problems and giving people anxiety. Yep. Th those are the people I want to write about. That's not saying every single story I do has to be that, yep. but I would hope that 80% of what I write about falls somewhere in that category. To me, that's the only meaningful way to do my job. I don't want to be in a position of just telling refried narratives. Why would I tell you, hey, this thing that was popular three years ago, still popular, still kind of sounds the same. I would much rather tell you about the weird kid yep. who maybe is never going to be a superstar, but is sort of like agitating at the fringe. That's a story to me. I'll much rather spend a week of my life thinking about that than a week of my time sort of like onerously like retelling a story that's already been told 10 times. It used to be that when you would look back on the past musically, you could use like, I guess the charts, yeah. you know, and mm -hmm. say, okay, this is what was big. Here's yeah, something yeah. ascending. And the charts are a lot less clear what they mean now. I mean, mm -hmm. they were probably kind of wonky to begin with but yeah i mean like let's you know i'm always skeptical of false golden age yeah no and in some ways i i don't even think of that as a golden age that seems like a very thin way to yeah. look backwards but now with the streaming age mm -hmm. and really the biggest story in music in the last decade being spotify itself yeah. or spotify and its ilk yeah spotify does not have quasi-transparent metrics in the way mm -hmm. that Billboard does. They're cutting weird exclusive deals, deals with yep. people. Mm -hmm. I was reading something about the title streaming numbers for uh, The Life of Pablo mm -hmm. uh, looks yeah. suspicious from a Fugazi. Fugazi, little, little, uh, little data manipulation. How does that affect what you're doing? And do you feel necessary to cover these format wars and how they're pushing music in certain directions it's an interesting question because formats beget sonics there are things approaches that work better in a streaming format than they would have in an album cd vinyl format i wrote a piece about post malone and ray schremmerd because those records to me were just records that were designed to be streamed they were designed to me the dominant aesthetic strategy of those records was to make you forget that you could press stop. And that's not a thing. If you listen to records from the nineties, that's not, you, you know where the song starts and middles yep. and ends. It's very clear. Yeah. There's a skit between them. So yeah, but not, I think there are artists who are extremely well tuned yep. to the delivery mechanisms. So in that way, I try to orient some of my writing around what is the mechanism? Like, yeah. how are people reacting to those mechanisms? We talk a lot on podcast about Spotify core, which is a thing I'm pretty sure we invented. If someone else invented it, please feel free to tell me. But you know, I don't feel I don't feel any ownership of it. But Spotify core being a particular type of pop music that's like 
innocuous female singer, lightly European, BPMs a little faster than American pop, but not club fast. And that are absorptive kind of overall mm. in overall aesthetic. Like in, it's kind of like mushy a little bit. And if you look on the Spotify new music playlists, invariably you'll encounter five or ten every week new songs of people you've just never heard of who are like maybe moderately popular in Sweden. And they have these songs and they all sound very structurally similar. I have not yet written a Spotify core take. Like I've not written that piece, but certainly we've talked about it a bunch on the podcast. And I think that it's, you can identify that that's an actual innovations, a strong word. Cause I don't know how innovative it is, but it's an actual sonic change that is happening. Part of my job as a critic is to decide, okay, that's happening. Is it important? Or literally does it just serve to get from track 36 to track 38? Does it merely serve as kind of connective tissue? I'm not convinced I know the answer. I think it's probably not important in a big picture way, but it's certainly something I think about, especially as like Spotify core aesthetics eventually will trickle towards mainstream pop stars. So this clip, I mean, I was just going back through your last year and publishing on the Times. A lot of stories. Yeah. I think I also caught that uh, Kalefa Senna, who was previously a Times critic, got like a little burnt out on the pace. <laughs> um, so you really did the digging. Yeah. So sure. you're, you're 10 years in. Yeah. Is it sustainable? Is this what you want to keep doing? Do you have other things that would work at different time mm-hmm. paces? I don't know. I think my skin is still young and dewy. Uh, so my hope is I can maintain a, yep. a dewy disposition. No, I, it is my hope to begin work on a book very soon. Mm. Maybe as soon as when this podcast comes out, it's, 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 it's in the, it's, and you know, the topic for this. I do. Book. I do. I don't, I don't want to say it, but yeah. I do know what the topic is. Um, if you're a book editor, y'all be seeing me. Yeah. I think what I'm trying to figure out is, are there things that I can say in a book that I can't say in my day to day job? Yeah. I also know that at some point I'll just be 55 and I won't want to be in the studio with juice world. No shots to juice world. Yeah. Lovely experience. Yeah, But you know what I mean? Like, I, I just won't want that rhythmically. I'm a night person. I'm not a morning person. Like, I tend to be most productive between, like, 11 and 2 a.m. At a certain point, I'm sure, it's like, the realities of being an adult will, like, come in. But I've done a pretty good job of, like, kind of holding Gotten pretty those far. At, I've, gotten, I've done well holding those at bay. Do you get diff- a different response um, in the studio now at however old you are now versus when you were in your 20s and you'd be in the studio with someone? Yeah, in a, in a way, you become more anonymous the older you are. Yeah. And you're like, you're just the old guy. Yeah. Even though I'm not that old, but you're not the kid. Like, when I was 24 going in a studio, like, I could reasonably be in someone's entourage. You know, like, I could have been, like, that seventh guy in someone's entourage because I dress the same, and I, I still kind of dress the same. Like, you know, like, I still... You know, Juice World and I talked about the same the sneakers I was wearing, which yep. were like sneakers that he had been wearing at some other time in that week. You know, it's like that's like there's a visual language and there's a visual comfort. But as you get older, I think you become a little bit more anonymous. Like you become a little bit like, oh, that guy's here, but like we're not thinking about it so much. But as a journalist, that's actually kind of good. That said, when I'm in my mid fifties or late fit, like you know, there but for the grace of go I like I just I hope that's not what my life looks like so you know a book TV things I have like a couple of things that are sort of halfway towards completion or halfway towards 
maybe getting a check somewhere. We'll see. But I really, I'm lucky. I, I'm, I, you know, I don't want to like, I feel ending on like a positive note is so cheesy, but like I do. You're a survivor. I, I do genuinely feel like a lot of the writers that I grew up loving. Yeah. No longer write about music. Yeah. You know, and a lot of my peers that I grew up with no longer write about music. I feel like incredibly, incredibly fortunate. Thank you so much for this interview. Appreciate you, man. Thank you for listening to the Long Form Podcast. Thanks to my guest, John Caramonica. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Thanks to our editor this week, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to our intern, Tyler McCloskey. Uh, thanks to Google Play. Thanks to Read This Summer, which is put on by MailChimp. And we really appreciate them for everything they do for the show. And of course, thanks to the writing department at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email, podcast at longform.org. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.